This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You've heard of Facebook, right? Huge site, over a billion people visiting it every day. But what's it like working there? I talked with product designer Carla Cole to find out. The most interesting thing about working at Facebook is that there's just so many, gosh, there's so many people from different places and different walks of life. And you just have to be really good at communicating and understanding and listening and being patient and working fast. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Dev Bootcamp is looking for a senior software developer instructor, as well as a lead engineer. HyperAct is looking for a brand strategist. Bandcamp is looking for a designer. And the New York Times is looking for a freelance product designer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and this is a special episode for our fourth anniversary which just happens to be tomorrow on February 28th. So before we get into this episode, I have three quick things I want to mention. First up, I've mentioned this throughout the month, but Revision Path is currently featured on iTunes. It's part of a special campaign that Apple is running uh, for February called The Black Experience. And we're featured in the perspectives and interviews section with a bunch of really great shows. It's a huge honor. Really, really have to thank Apple for that and also really have to thank Barry of Podcasts in Color. That's her influence there that really has made that happen. Secondly, we're winding up this year of 28 Days of the Web. That's our sister site where we showcase a different black designer or developer in February in conjunction with and in celebration of Black History Month. We've been doing that now also for four years and we've recognized well over 100 designers and developers. So make sure you check out the site 28daysoftheweb.com or you can follow Revision Path on Instagram or Facebook for daily updates. And lastly, and this is news I'm super excited about, we have a new sponsor. Drumroll, please. SiteGround. SiteGround offers managed web hosting and I love it. I really do. Remember when we were at our old web host, we were always getting hacked, the website was slow. Listen, since we moved to SiteGround, all of that is a thing of the past. I'm so glad to have their support as a sponsor. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional business or enterprise projects. So whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress like we do, SiteGround lets you build faster, better, and safer websites more easily 
and offers multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. And we have a fantastic deal for you from SiteGround. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off all hosting plans. 60%. Again, SiteGround.com forward slash revision path. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And of course, because they are now one of our new sponsors, you'll see that all throughout the website, the newsletter and everything. And speaking of sponsors, let's talk about the other companies that help make us great. MailChimp and Hover. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send emails, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional looking newsletters to your clients today for free. By the way, have you seen their new campaign with the, the fail chips and kale limp and jail blimp and all that stuff? It's so much fun. We'll put a link in the show notes that you can check out. So you can see all of the campaigns that they have. They're really fun. And if you want to sign up for MailChimp, head on over to MailChimp.com. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and that's where Hover comes in. Right now, you can get 50% off dot .design domains for the first year, so that's only $19.99, which is not bad. If you don't like that one, you can choose your domain name from the hundreds of other extensions out there and use our promo code REVISIONPATH, and you can save an additional 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're now at 43 patrons for a new total of $272 per month. Again, a huge thanks to all of you that have pledged your support and your appreciation for the show through Patreon. It really, really helps us out. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, or if you've gotten any value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get access to great perks like future episodes, free Revision Path goodies, and access to our special patrons-only podcast. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 a month, and it's a great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. So, for this week, we're doing something a little different. Um, Let me take a look back at some of my favorite episodes over the years. We're going to do a deep dive through the archives. And I've also got an interview with a special guest at the end of the show. So, let's go ahead and get started. So, some of you may be wondering how Revision Path really even came to be. I've explained this, I think, in a few interviews, but it probably does well to explain it here on the show as well. I initially had the idea to create Revision Path back in 2006. Um, At the time, I was doing a project uh, that I created called the Black Weblog Awards. And I was a working designer, and there was a Best Design Blog category. And I knew that there were several other of my friends and peers that were doing really great, wonderful design work, but just were not getting any kind of recognition for their work at all, whereas their peers certainly were, even for doing not the same quality of work. And so I wanted to do something then to celebrate designers, but I was working full-time, I was in grad school full-time, I was doing the Black Weblog Awards, I just didn't have the space to put on a whole other project. It really wasn't until 2013, well really actually 2012, uh, December 2012, when I, you know, kind of had the time and the space to do this. I had started my business at that point. I sold the Black Weblog Awards. And I was like, you know what, this is the time to really do it. It really first launched in February of 2013, which is why I sort of consider this the anniversary month. 
And we started doing long form interviews, just text interviews, and then eventually podcasts. And here we are. So now looking back over well over 200 interviews, well over 180 podcast episodes, you know, some episodes have stuck out as my favorites. I mean, I think I love each interview and episode that I do in its own special and unique way. But there certainly are some that have stuck out to me more and I find myself always referencing them, whether in conversation or in other interviews. So first, I want to start off with a clip from an interview that I did with Sella Lewis. Uh, for those of you who might remember, Sella Lewis is episode 164. That episode aired on Halloween, October 31st of 2016. And in this clip, I'm asking Sella, what does it mean to her to be a designer today? I think it means forcing yourself to be a part of the social conversation. You can absolutely privilege the work if you are passionate. I don't think that will ever go away. I think loving Swiss style and loving Bauhaus, that doesn't make you complicit in anything, but doing so requires asking deeper conversations of like, why is that all we lean on? And why do we elevate that above all other styles and sensibilities? And interrogating that a little bit further and further and further. And so I think that that, that I think is what is important right now is in, and not just right now, because everybody's talking about it, like it's the issue du jour, but just as a contemporary communicator, right? Because my biggest fear is that in two, three, five years, we're going to stop talking about diversity because it, you know, it's not the issue du jour. We're still going to be met with these challenges, but we're still speaking in a contemporary visual language. And we mm -hmm. once again don't know how to have a contemporary conversation about the social issues that we're facing. And so I would like more designers to understand that they operate in a continually moving social aspect and they need to flex other muscles besides just, oh, look at this cool logo I made or look at this great poster I did or I redesigned this like really complicated form. That's great. But if you want to like get into some bigger, deeper issues, you're going to have to interrogate some other aspects of yourself. Back in 2014, I had the immense privilege and pleasure to interview Emery Douglas. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Emery Douglas is the former Minister of Culture for the Black Panther Party, and he's also a 2015 AIGA medalist. You know, when I think about designers that have really had an impact on the American landscape as it relates to being tied to a, you know, a specific social movement, you know, I think of Romare Bearden, I think Andy Warhol, I think Norman Rockwell, and then of course I think Emory Douglas. So in this clip, I'm kind of asking Emory what it was like for him in the Black Panthers, and was he the only designer that was available? You'll probably hear some really famous names he sort of drops um, in this clip as well. Uh, and, and, and initially, I was. What happened is how it all started as a designer. It started through the Black Panther Party uh, political organ, the newspaper itself. The mm -hmm. first the first one was done April 2nd. That was Bobby Seale on a leaflet, 11 by 8.5 by 11 legal size uh, leaflet that they had typewriter, typed on a typewriter. Uh, and Bobby Seale had done the mascara with markers and things like that. And so what happened one evening, uh, I came by a place where we used to have a lot of cultural events in San Francisco. 
and Bobby and Huey were there because Elders Cleaver was a person who they were trying to recruit to be the writer for the newspaper. And he lived there upstairs, and the, all the cultural activity went on downstairs. And so Bobby was working on that particular flyer uh, when I got there. And I'd seen what he was doing, and I told him, well, I got some few materials, which I had left over from City College, like uh, rub-off type and all those kinds of things, uh, and uh-huh. headlines and stuff, that I could go get them and uh, come back and, uh, you know, and he said, okay. And so when I came, it took me about a half an hour to go and a half hour to get back. And so uh, when I got back, he said they were surprised that I came back and that I came back with my material. But he said they were finished with that paper. But they had planned to start a newspaper, and they wanted me to be the revolutionary artist because I've been coming around, hanging around, and seeing committed. So they were going to have this whole vision about the paper, and they wanted me to be the first title with revolutionary artist for the Black Panther newspaper. And so that was my first involvement, uh, and the first paper came out in uh, around uh, May 2nd, uh, uh, 1967. And uh, the first three, four issues was basically I was using my skills as a production artist, doing layout, those kinds of things. It was on-the-job training because I had minimum uh, knowledge, experience. I did have work experience at City College much because I had developed my skills to the point where they would send me out on jobs. So all that played a part into um, when I went, when I counted into the Black Panther Party, using those skills uh, in regards to help developing the, uh, the, uh, the aesthetics and the, uh, of the newspaper itself. It was about, uh, I could say about uh, the first... Uh, Six months or so, uh, I did 99%. I did most of the art. As a matter of fact, I, you could say throughout the party, I did about 85% of all the artwork. But there was still a large volume of the work that was done by others, some who had greater skills than I did as artists, but didn't have the, didn't have the insight at that time how to integrate the politics of the social commentary into their artwork that would focusing from the standpoint of what the Black Panther Party was trying to put across. So that was became my responsibility. Jacinda Walker. I learned about Jacinda through her work before I actually even met her. Uh, she's a wonderful designer, educator at the time she was in graduate school at the ohio state university currently she serves as the chair of the aiga diversity and inclusion task force but i've known her from that period since being a student to then so i've really been able to kind of see her growth and i'm, I'm really glad that she's someone that is a voice for designers of all stripes really particularly black designers in this industry in this clip, this is from our interview. This is from episode 39. This was on August 11th, 2014. And it was actually Jacinda and I, our first speaking opportunity together. I think actually it's been the only time we've spoken together. This was for the 2014 WMC Fest. And Jacinda explains why it is that she fights so hard for black designers. I can't sit here and do nothing anymore. You know, I, I've, I've put my 20 years in the game already. I, I put my 20 years in already. I've gotten my awards and my accolades and, you know, the stuff that comes with being a designer. I got that already. But what happens when my 15-year-old niece tells me, Auntie, I want to be a designer like you. Do I want her coming into the industry like this? 
Mm-hmm. I can't I, I can't let her come into this industry knowing that I didn't do whatever I could to make it better for her. You know, now she's 17 and she's looking at colleges and it's even scarier. <laughs> so being able to set something up for us and for them is important for me. This year at, at the WMC conference, we're going to have this conversation on the main stage. I've already got some calls of why you're going to do that. How come we going to do it? I've already gotten those calls. And to them, I say, you may have had this conversation 20 years ago, but clearly it wasn't documented or clearly you can't tell me how it went so that I can continue it or even improve on where things may have not gone right. Mm -hmm. You know, but just because it happened doesn't mean it can't happen again. And doesn't mean that this might not be the change. Doesn't mean that the people who are involved on this time, this part of the conversation, can't do something different. And I, I think our magnet, our, our impact as black designers is even greater now than it was 20 years ago. You know what I'm saying? So many more of us are doing the entrepreneurial track. So many of us are starting nonprofit organizations to help. You know, I, I listened at some of your past interviews especially the one with the guy from the Interpac in, um, Interact. Interact Project. And, Marty you know, Yes, and before you even ask me what my dream job is, I'm putting it out there. I want that job. That is the job. You know, that is the job I want because that what he's doing in that small area, if that were able to roll out to, like, national and global spectrum, Maurice, it would change the game and it would change the game at a part at the K-12 part of education, not just the college part, the K-12, which is where the impact is really suffering. John Daniel was my first UK interview. His interview happened right before Jacinda's. He's episode 37, took place on July 28th, 2014. And John has been a creative director and a designer for well over 20 years. I would say probably his most well-known project, which is what he discusses in this clip, is the Afro Superhero Exhibit. And he talks about kind of the confluence of British, Caribbean, and African-American culture and how it manifests itself in his work. Wow, how do they shape my work? I mean, they are. They absolutely do shape shape the work that I do. And um, I guess I kind of try to include that influence in recognising people, you know, from across the, the whole diaspora. I suppose Afro Superhero, if I was going to say what project is really about me and my life, that's really what Afro Superhero is about. It's influenced by my kind of own search for identity as a a black kid growing up in in England you know where at that time I never felt part of of British society and it was Mm -hmm. it was easy to have that feeling because basically you know you had a lot of racism you had skinhead culture you had all these different things that were kind of marking you out as as kind of different if you see what I mean but Uh uh, the same and, and also I was very fortunate to go to both Barbados and Grenada 
at a very young age, my parents took us back to the West Indies. When I mean, the first time I went was when I was two or two and a half, and it's my earliest memory is being in Barbados and, and you know, and, and being in that environment. I, I still remember it very vividly, even though I was only two, two and a half at the time. And so, and also, on my dad's side of the family, in particular, they had big family reunions where the family from the from Barbados had emigrated to the US so um and so again that was a very mind-blowing influential inspirational time for me when i went to the states when i was the first time i went was when i was an early teen i was about 13 or 14 you know to go over there and see well number one to meet all these cousins and third cousins and tenth cousins and i mean literally we would have taken over a hotel there'd be about 200 people all related all staying in this hotel you know over the course of a week or so you know which is so that was a it's a real privilege to have been able to experience that but the other side is then coming where we didn't really have the same level of black programming that you have in the states so you know coming over and seeing sitcoms like the jeffersons and and you know the Jackson 5 cartoons and the kind of the whole notion of what was going on in the States in a more evolved sense than we had in the UK was, again, hugely inspirational um, to me. I've also done a lot of research into my family history, and so, but I've also done ancestral DNA tests. So okay. I know that on my father's side, my DNA comes from Mahalume in Swaziland, and on my mother's side, it comes from Tanzania, um, Lake Iyasi. And so, again, these are places that I've got to, I've got to visit, I've got to go to at some point, and, and they're places that are on my map to take the Afro superhero show to. So, you know, my journey now is very much about promoting the Afro superhero show because I see it as me find is me kind of pulling all the strands of my kind of DNA and heritage together and and I think it's a very true diaspora story because it's it involves the UK it involves America it involves Africa it involves the Caribbean so I think there's you know there's something very powerful there I'm I'm hoping to make a a documentary about the whole thing as well Angelica Ross was our 50th podcast interview, and this interview took place, um, well, it aired, I should say, on October 27th, 2014, during our first LGBT month. And this is something that I've tried to kind of continue every year since I started Revision Path. Angelica is the CEO and executive director of TransTech SE. SE stands for Social Enterprises. And it's a training academy and an apprenticeship program that sort of empowers and educates the trans community to use technology to help promote innovation, independence, entrepreneurship. She's won awards for doing this work. Uh, Just doing a really amazing, awesome job in the community as a whole, not just the trans community, but in the community altogether. During our interview, she talks about kind of changing the culture of the design community through diversity and talks about the importance of mentorship. What you just like alluded to and talked about for me breaks down to some very underlying issues, which is, you know, there's really not a value for other cultures. When you bring 
diversity into a workplace. A lot of times what a lot of companies really want and really mean is they're looking for those who are the at the cream of the crops in, in each of these, you know, different, you know, ethnic backgrounds or whatever you see. I see a lot. They've learned to manage their cultural identity in a way that is less threatening to corporate culture. And where I feel that there needs to be according or more involvement in the actual cultures, not in an appreciation for what different cultures bring to the table. It's sort of how, you know, society, we have Black History Month, you know, that one month and we have, you know, Mm -hmm. Latino month and we have different things or whatever. But there needs to be, especially in corporate culture as well, recognition of the contributions that people from various ethnic backgrounds have made to design and technology, especially in design, cultures have been creating art from the beginning of time. And Mm -hmm. so when we talk about in the design world where we are coming up with client ideas, brands and strategies and whatnot, why not look to the various pool that we have of cultures and, and ethnic design to, and, and it's a way to, again, bring the culture more in than bringing a person that you want to mold into, you know, your corporate culture. So I think that's, that's one side of that issue. The other side is that I think that people need to also remember and recognize the flexibility that careers in education in tech and design bring us. We know that the reality is, yes, you can go to a four-year school and get a degree and, you know, learn some great things and do well. But we also know that for those who are determined, for those who are really passionate, for those who are willing to work, that there's a path of teaching yourself. And But that path of teaching yourself, what's missing a lot of that time is mentorship from those who have done it before or those who have experience within more conventional structures. So the solution here, I think, is if anyone, especially LGBT, but if anyone calls themselves interested in diversity and if anyone has is saying that they're making a real commitment to diversity, then the real step of action would be to open up your world for as long as you can. Open up your world for one day, for a six-hour day, and let someone who is diverse learn from you. Learn in the ways that we know technology supports in this freelance way. Have them as almost like an intern. Part of the time, maybe they're like we're doing. They're watching videos on lynda.com. Why recreate the wheel? Pay for right. pay for them to have an access to a lynda.com account so they can learn the basics that you think that they need to learn and the other things they can learn from you in that space. For that kind of internship, obviously, I would prefer for those who can pay because for trans person especially who has experienced challenges with employment, that means they're also experiencing challenges with homelessness. How do you keep an apartment or home when you're not employed or making money? You know, and how do you eat and how do you do these things? So the more support that they can provide for that person to show up for that opportunity, the better. And then during that opportunity, if you can pay them, great. But even if you can't pay them, what you're giving them is something very valuable to talk about in a job interview and to tell that next person that I am valuable. 
Seth Funches is a guest that I had back on the show um, in September 2014, episode 45. And he's someone who had, I guess now over the years, become more than just a past guest. He's become kind of an ersatz mentor, a friend. Uh, currently, he's the executive director of design at Vox Media Incorporated. Uh, but as we were doing this interview, he was heading up his own agency called Flippo Interactive. And so in this short clip, we sort of talk about where do you go from here? If you go back and listen to Sed's interview, he's done a little bit of everything. He's worked in the education industry, in video games, in the NBA. He wrote a children's book. And so I really wanted to know, like, you've accomplished all this great creative work. What's the next step? But I think, I think the biggest part is that, you know, I did what made me happy. And I really focused on that. And so truly the writing that book and getting the response that I've gotten, you know, from celebrities, from just people all over, just like, hey, man, thanks for doing something like that, that, you know, I couldn't have, yeah. I couldn't have said those kind of words, but I'm glad you did. That was, man, I'll be honest with you, that was, that was about it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really need anything else. And, you know, sometimes I, I find myself. Um, looking at the way people view designers and you need to do this and you have to do that. Well, if I could get a job at any of those top places, I would. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're not hiring me. So I have to be very confident with what I set my course to do. And I think my course was to be a respected designer and someone who is respected for being able to create. You have an idea, write it on a napkin. I will create an entire world for I really have to credit Antoinette Carroll for getting me involved with AIGA in the first place. Uh, leading up to her episode, which aired on September 15, 2014, episode 44, I was not a member of AIGA. I had heard about it, but I was always kind of told that you had to be like a capital D designer, had to have went to art school, all that sort of stuff, in order to really be a part of it. But after talking with her, she really kind of, you know, sort of opened my eyes as to what AIGA is about and how I could get involved with the work that I'm currently doing. And so right after our interview, I believe I joined and I've been a member of the task force ever since. So in this clip, she kind of breaks down why diversity is important in design. And you'll hear two names in here. Uh, first person that she's talking about, Rick, is Rick Griffey, who at the time was the executive director of AIGA. And the second person who I think I mentioned is Albert Whitley, who was also a guest on the show. At the time, he was the vice president of the AIGA Atlanta chapter. So, so take a listen as Antoinette kind of explains why diversity in design is important. I really like the breakdown that she gives. Um, well, right now I'm working with the strategic manager. Her name is Aiden O'Connor in office of AIGA. And it's interesting because it started as kind of a email conversation between myself and Aiden and how I was expressing her when I went to the site, you know, the design journey seemed out of date. There were many initiatives I saw that happened in the past, but nothing was happening now. And what could we do to bring this into the, you know, millennial generation, as well as to kind of make sure the conversation is ongoing and sustainable, opposed to dying off uh, once volunteers are no longer able to provide their time. So from that, they saw kind of my interest, connected me with individuals 
in like from the San Francisco chapter, from the West Michigan chapter, they kind of had the same concern. And from there at our leadership retreat that happened in May this year, I led a round table around diversity programming and what that means. And I kind of also received feedback on what happened the previous iteration of the diversity task force and how there were many pros and cons with that. And just kind of from that assessment and evaluation was able to kind of provide AIGA with that insight that some they knew, some they didn't, did not. And they felt the need to restart the task force. And I will admit I was very persuasive. (laughs) I didn't really, (laughs) I didn't really back down that much because many times you have companies say, well, we don't really have the resources or we don't have the money or we don't have the time. And as I expressed to them, this is something that is very important. You know, it's not changing, you know, articles from written in 1991 or why graphic design is 93% white, you know, it's not much has changed. And Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily just about racial equity, but then also looking at LGBTQ rights and how disability plays a role and how we're not being reflective of the community in which we're serving. So from that, Right now, I'm working with the task force that we are still developing from people from around the nation that are very adamant about this issue. And we're looking at recommendations such as I know personally, I'm more spearheading the recommendation of them hiring the first diversity and inclusion director to be within the AIGA office. Oh, wow. Because from my research and just also from my connections, Within the advertising industry, there are many professional associations that have that already. They have national internship programs. They have kind of fellowships and sponsorships. But AIGA in in the design community, you don't really see that happening. So so I'm more kind of challenging people to, you know, put the money where your mouth is. And if you're saying that it's important, let's actually have someone fully dedicated to this full time so that it doesn't die off once a volunteer is gone. Wow. I need to submit my resume for that, <laughs> <laughs> for that AIGA uh, position. But no, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, a few weeks ago I talked with Albert Whitley. Albert Whitley is the vice president of AIGA Atlanta, the Atlanta chapter. And we talked about diversity in the field and we talked about diversity within AIGA. He brought up your name as well. And then I've also talked with Andrew Bass, who I believe was maybe one of the former chairs of the AIGA Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. And a lot of what he mentioned, and I don't know if this might have factored into the pros and cons that you heard at the retreat, but he was saying that there was this, I don't know, it, it seemed like there wasn't this really big insistence on keeping it going outside of maybe one or two exhibits. It was hard to sort of find people. It was hard to sort of get things done Mm -hmm. specifically about the design journeys thing. I've interviewed a few people from that. I mean, but the thing is, I wouldn't have known about it unless AIGA did it, right? Right. So I was able to talk to Maurice Woods and Steve Jones and Michelle Washington and Emery Douglas and, you know, have them on the show and be able to talk with them about kind of what their work is and what they've done. But like you said, a lot of that is it's outdated. I mean, these are still people that are working designers in the field. So I don't want to make it seem like they're they're relics right. or something like that. But you have something like that that needs to kind of be continued. Like the journey just can't be one stop. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it has to be something that continues, whether that's through recommendations, whether it's through suggestions. 
and I've talked with Aiden, I've talked with Rick, and we've discussed kind of that same thing as well. And what they've both reiterated is that at least for within diversity, within AIGA, like it has to come from the members, like it has to come from the members. It has to be people that volunteer. So it's not necessarily so much of an outside force. It really has to come from within the organization. Right. And and to me, the membership, they're calling for it. You know, how many design conferences are we going to or even advertising conferences where it's always a panel on diversity and how we need more? And what I always found, because I've said on a few of them, is that you usually have the diversity on those panels, but then when you look beyond the diversity panel, it's, right. not, it's non-existent. And and to me, if you don't have someone that's always on that, that they're all that's their top of mind is where can we get more diversity? Not something where it's just a volunteer from the outside looking in. You're not going to be able to truly exhibit that change that you're looking for. And I know it should be member based, volunteer based, but I think it is. That's why the recommendations are you know, being provided, they're provided for my membership. And to me, what I also, because there's a few recommendation design journeys, the continuation of that and making sure that it's quarterly updated and ongoing, more representation on the board from diverse backgrounds. But I'm also looking into somewhat kind of the mindset of a design a design census. What does our design industry look like right now? We need to do this every five to 10 years, send a survey out and not just about our salary, but then what does our makeup look like? What are the career opportunities for designers? What do they need? And in turn, when we know that information opposed to just guessing, that's when we truly can satisfy our members, not only in AIGA, but just designers from other membership organizations. This next clip that you're about to hear is from Brandon Butler. Brandon Butler was one of our like very first interviews for the show. Uh, this is episode seven. This aired on October 7th, 2013. And there's a story that he tells all the time about how he tried to get an internship on the radio down here in Atlanta on one of the local stations, V103. And it's a, it's a really great story about perseverance um, I'm not going to spoil it. I just want you to listen to it. Um, I even tell people to go listen to this episode just for this story, you know, years and years later. So check it out. Can I tell you a story real quick? Yeah, go right ahead. So remember, like I said earlier, I always want to work in radio. This is the story that I tell everybody about motivation. <laughs> so remember, I said earlier, I always want to work in radio. Mm -hmm. So Right after I graduated from college, I was sitting at my parents' house one day because I was broke like everybody else and living at home. <laughs> and I listened to Ryan Cameron on the radio on B103 here in Atlanta. And I tell everybody this story. And Ryan Cameron is my favorite radio personality in the entire world. You know, just growing up here in Atlanta, I think he's just the greatest radio personality ever. So one day Ryan Cameron said, we're looking for interns. If you want to be an intern uh, send me a copy of your resume. Now, this is really before email, everything mm -hmm. really took off. So you literally had to write them a letter and put it in the mail and send it. Right. So I thought to myself, self, what if you want to get noticed, what would you do? And so you do, do you know what I did? What's that? I made 103 copies of my res, my uh, resume because it was V103. Uh-huh. And I got I went to the post office and mailed 103 copies of my resume to Ryan Cameron. <laughs> this is a true story. 
Wow. And about two or three days later, he called me on the radio and he asked me some question. He was like, Brandon, please, I got the letters. Stop sending the letters. You got the internship. Come up here. You got the internship. And I'm like, yes, I got the intern. It was crazy. And he was like, just, I was like, I can't stop sending them. I put them all in the mail at once because the mail <laughs> literally delivered the letters like over a week. Oh, so wow. So every day for a week, he got like 10 to 20 letters. Wow. <laughs> So the first day, I always wanted to get this job. I get the job, and he's like, be at the radio station tomorrow morning at 4.30 a.m. Because Ryan Cameron does the morning show. Mm -hmm. I didn't know they had to be at the radio station at 4.30. Oh, this was a while ago, and Ryan Cameron, okay, this was... Exactly. Yeah. So I had to be at the radio station at 4.30. I woke up that morning. It was raining and storming, and it was, I swear to God, it was a hurricane outside. I don't know what it was. And I'm driving downtown in my little broke-down car to go to the radio station. I get there, and Ryan Cameron, I tell you this, he was the biggest jerk to me. He was so mean. Really? Like, he wouldn't talk to me. He told me to go get his coffee. <laughs> and, 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 like, you got to understand, I had been doing IT. Uh-huh. So I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I can be making money. I'm not <laughs> messing around with this knucklehead. I thought he was cool. You know, and this jerk got me down here, you know, want me to be, he would tell me to be at the radio station at 4.30. The show didn't start till 7. He wouldn't get there till 6. So for an hour and a half, I was just there, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like just sitting around and like I didn't see it as the opportunity it was. And so one day I just quit and I will never forget this. Ryan Cameron called me on my cell phone and he said to me, Brandon, I thought you really wanted this because of how you came at me. You know, I'm really disappointed that you just quit on me like this. And that just always stuck with me, like even to this day. So I don't like I don't quit, man. Like I don't give up. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, and I always, it's funny because I've run into him a couple of times and I think he kind of remembers me. He's still probably like, man, screw this guy. And that's cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, but like, I tell everybody that, man, like, don't be like I was because the crazy thing about it is that when he gave me that opportunity, he also had hired like two or three other people at the same time. Uh-huh. And all of those people are still in radio right now. I hear them on the radio every single day. Oh, wow. And it kills me inside. I swear it does. And I promise you, they probably don't even remember me. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Because I was just that quick. I was just the, I was through there. I was just the guy that quit, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Wow. So I tell everybody, man, don't wow. be like I was. Don't let pride keep you from doing, because I, I promise you, I think that I was here to do radio. And I have no doubt in my mind that had I had sucked it up and did what I said I wanted to do and really followed what I said my passion was, uh-huh. that I'd be doing radio. And I love, well, I love working in technology. That's fine. You know, I probably wouldn't even know how to build a website to this day had I been doing that, you know, but I'm just saying, like, don't be like I was because that was that might have been my only opportunity. And the blessing thing was I was able to get back at 790. And, you know, this was, you know, that's that's how I kind of got in through the Web. And I've always, you know, and I've always loved being around it. But once again, that might have been my shot for greatness. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so my question is, did I lose it over my ego? Did I lose it because I didn't want to get up at 430? Did I lose it because somebody I looked up to? Maybe he was just being a jerk because he was trying to teach me a lesson. Maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe he didn't want to be up at six o'clock. I don't know. But, you know, you know, hindsight is, is so 2020, man. Yeah. You know, so once again, like I tell folks, don't be like I was. You know, I'm, I'm blessed that I found a great opportunity and I've grown and learned a lot from it. But I tell all my interns that story. I tell anybody that wants to learn, like, don't, you know, don't let your ego get in, in the way of your dreams, you know, because you might not get another chance to do it.
I truly could not do an anniversary episode of Revision Path without including something from Sarah Honey Young. Honey has been such an inspiration to me as a designer, just as a, a person, really, but specifically as a designer. Her work just has this this magic to it that I have not really seen in any other designer out there. And so I was really fortunate and glad to be able to get her on for the 100th episode. It's our longest episode to date, <laughs> uh, but make sure you go check it out. We did our 100th episode. That was back in October of 2015. And, you know, because I had the opportunity to get her on and she'll tell you, I had been trying to get her on the show for years, you know, I just had to ask the question, with all the work that you've done and at the level of work that you've done and the, the quality of the work, why is it that more people don't know who you are? And the answer that she gave me was pretty surprising. Check it out. I think it's my fault in some ways because I keep it pretty humble. I definitely have my moments. Obviously, I named my site that bitch. So I have my moments where, you know, I walk around popping my collar. But I think that some of it is just wanting to be really humble and keep my head low and just be a good worker. But it also kind of harkens back to, I think, what a lot of black women do. Like we're just the mules of the world and we just got to bust our ass and keep it humble. And I think that that's something I'm kind of trying to deprogram myself from. And it doesn't necessarily mean like being Kanye, although I love him, <laughs> but I would love to find a great balance between like kind of keeping it low the way that I do and, and having the confidence of a Kanye. And I actually was talking about him the other day because somebody asked me what my dream job would be. And I was like, I kind of have two really one of them. I can't say yet because I'm still working on that as a long-term goal. But mm -hmm. it does have to do with the lingerie line that I'm hoping to launch next year. But I also was like, I want to be Kanye West creative director. I just want to creative direct that dude's tours. I want to creative direct his fashion shows. I just want to be in the room with somebody who has that kind of magnetic belief in their own artistic ability. Like there's something very beautiful and infectious about it. And he's definitely like an arrogant dickhead sometimes about it <laughs> but nobody can tell Kanye he's not great and if even a fraction of that confidence was instilled in people I think that they could create just achieve great things so I think a lot of it has to do with me kind of not putting myself out there in that way and it's not even a conscious decision it's just nothing that I really think of inherently but I do know there's a lot of sites that I could definitely put myself out there to like I would love to do an interview with you guys I probably should have a media kit of some kind I definitely could have proposed a South by Southwest panel here and there over the years I could have gone on some panels you know that people you know had asked me if I was interested in but the other half of it just being that I just work my ass off, man. Like, yeah. I really work my ass off for so many other people's projects. I put so much of myself and my passion and my energy into making sure that I'm creating these stunning, supreme projects for my clients that I always seem to come last. And I think it kind of speaks to being a mother as well, like just being a parent and mm -hmm. being in that mode of making sure everybody else is cool first. 
And that's right. something that I need to dismiss as well. Like, I know self-care is like a buzz term now, too. <laughs> In this last year or two, I've noticed a lot of articles about, like, self-care. What do you do for self-care? But that shit is very important. Like, oh, yeah. to actually take care of yourself first is the same concept as putting your oxygen mask on first in a plane and then putting right. and then helping everybody else. Like if I'm not taking care of myself and if I'm not developing my own projects, if I'm not focusing on my own development as a person, then I'm not going to be able to help anybody else either. And that's not what I want my legacy to be. I don't want my legacy to be about putting myself last. That's not what I want it to be anymore. So I think it has a lot to do with that. But then, of course, the other side of it is I don't think the industry, as much as it touts itself on being focused on diversity, I don't think that they're really going out and making an effort to find these black women designers or these Asian women designers who are really like have been doing it for a long time. Like, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> I'm definitely not unknown. I find that, you know, I think a lot of Black designers, especially ones that kind of started on the web around, like, the early and mid-2000s, I find that a lot of them know my work and a lot of them know who I am. But I think also part of it is just you have to be really visible on social media these days, too. Mm -hmm. And I have such a love-hate relationship with social media, especially Twitter. Like, Twitter is so great and so horrible <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Like, it's such a succubus. But I think channeling my energy in a different way on social media would also kind of propel me as well. So I'm sure it's all of those things all at once, but I really have to take responsibility for it as well. Like I can't just blame the industry for not giving them my props. <laughs> it has everything to do with, you know, me putting myself out there as well. So that's something I really want to change with the Voltron project with continuing to build Supreme clientele as the agency, but I hope it will be, is having myself on these higher platforms because really I feel like I have a message that I want to deliver and I, I guess I could sit in my house and tell it to my mama, but what good is that going to do at the end of the day, you know? This last clip that I want to share comes from episode 129, which aired on February 29th, 2016. And it's an episode with Ben Lindo. Ben Lindo is an industrial designer in Philadelphia. And it's a long clip. It's about 10 or 11 minutes long, but I really want you to listen to the whole thing because I think it really is something that underscores the power of community. And it's a story that when Ben told me, just it moved me because it was like, this is an instance where you're really seeing people come together to help someone out. And I think that is something that is a really strong theme with Revision Path. And it's something that I hope that you will get from listening to all of the interviews and things that I've done over the years. So without further ado, this is Ben Lindo, and he's talking about his time at Philadelphia University and how the power of community really helped him make it through. And starting out, I guess after applying to several different schools and finally deciding to uh, go for industrial design, Philadelphia University actually gave me more money, so it made it easier. <laughs> hey, I, I feel you. So, I feel you. 
<laughs> then, but then the second part of that, though, too, as far as like the funding aspect of it, it's like, well, I had to work in order to go to school. So mm-hmm. with that, you know, I was working at like Blockbuster and for a while I actually had two jobs, Blockbuster, and then I started working at UPS and going to school. So and starting out, you know, it's kind of the general program where first year it's kind of everyone kind of just uh, it's mixed up in the design classes. So. Uh, it's more like the foundations uh, side of it. And I guess within my family, I was the first in my household to start college. Mm-hmm. Um, my older brother, he actually was in the military. And then it wasn't until like my second year that he got out and he enrolled into uh, college. So it was like really new for me, you know, and mm-hmm. having to work and go to school was extremely rough. It was tiring. And just a lot of different people in my family who'd say, stick with it. You know, you, you know, definitely go to school and it's like, well, this is rough. You didn't do it. So how are you able to kind of tell me, you know, whether or not this is something I should go with, you know? So it was rough starting out. And also like my second or second semester of first year, my stepfather passed away. So that kind of uh, made it even tougher and even just figuring out whether or not finishing school was something I really wanted to do (laughs) at the Mm -hmm. time, um, as far as just the distraction. But, um, over time, you know, I was able to kind of move through that. When I started into the actual uh, industrial design program after the second year, which is after the foundations, I noticed, you know, kind of looking around that I was the only African-American in my program. And, you know, after kind of done with that for a few years, I began to also, you know, notice that, okay, I was the only African-American in my program. None of my teachers look like me. Nobody we studied in design history looked like me. And I think it was there uh, where I began to kind of discover what seemed to be a boundary between like me and my future, you know, because for some reason, just in my head, I felt like, you know, if there's nobody else here that looks like me, there's either a reason why we're not doing this or I guess, you know, we're just not allowed to or something. And I began to kind of think, well, and conventional, by conventional definition, you know, I had a pretty good job. I was working at UPS at that time now. I was driving. So it's like, well, if I do graduate, at least I'll have a degree and, you know, I have a pretty good job. I can become like a manager and stuff. I guess uh, just dealing with like a lot of different people and sometimes even instructors, I'd kind of get uh, comments like, well, you know, you need to quit your job. You, you come to class, your eyes are red. You, you look tired a lot. And you know, I did have a crazy schedule, but, you know, a lot of times it was just I had to do what I had to do to get in class, like UPS. So I had to wake up at 4 a.m. I had to catch the first uh, local train to South Philly to start work at 6 a.m. And I'd work from uh, 6 to about 12.30, and I had to be to class by around, like, 1.30. And then, depending on the day, I'd be in class until 11 o'clock at night and so a lot of times, you know, it really didn't leave me too much time to sleep. So there have been times I had to do like two or three days of kind of just staying up, you know, in order to try to get work done or actually just to complete anything. I remember mornings where I'd literally, I'd pick the truck up from South Philly and to get into Center City is where my area was. I'd have to ride with like both doors open and like yell like random things just to keep myself awake oh my <laughs> until I got to my first stop. And then, you know, it was like, I'm on foot, I'm carrying stuff. So I was pretty, I was good. You know, again, just after a while, 
it's seeming like uh, a lot of just like different limitations and instructors saying things to me like, oh, I understand you, you, you know, you have to work. And I was like, well, they'll say like, you need to quit your job. I was like, well, if I quit my job, I can't go to school. And then, you know, I'd get responses like, well, I understand you have mouths to feed. I was like, when did I ever say I had kids? What? So it was just like things like that where it became really discouraging. Um, yeah. I think like personally though, too, even like knowing, you know, just different people in my family is like, okay, I'm like the first to kind of go through college is like, I didn't want to be the one that I started it and I didn't finish it. And, you know, thinking like, well, how much of this is really just normal? You know, how much of it is just maybe the field that I chose? It's just kind of, if it's like this in school, will it be like that, (laughs) you know, after graduating though too? And I begin to figure out, you know, do I need to look at changing majors and things like that? And, you know, after so many comments like that, one day I literally decided to uh, Google black industrial designer just to see what came up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's crazy because even I think to this day for you to Google black industrial designer, not much comes up. And one guy's, you know, among a few others kept coming up. His name was Noel Mayo. And I went through a, a series of I kind of felt like a stalker because <laughs> uh, in a sense of a lot of the research that it did, because his name kept popping up in a lot of different articles or initiatives that he ran at like uh, say OSU or things that he had designed and contacted at one point a guy by the name of Eric Anderson, who's uh, teaching at Carnegie Mellon and he had his office line and I called him up and I started talking to him and, I asked him, you know, hey, by the way, you know, do you know Noel Mayo? And he was like, oh, yeah, I actually just saw him, you know, like last week. I let him know. Next time I see him or talk to him, you know, that, you know, you're trying to get in touch with him. And he had given me the information to another teacher at OSU who then put me in touch with Noel in the sense of I had gotten his office line, but it was never connected to an answering machine. So, mm-hmm. Reminds you again, I'm working at UPS. I'd literally hurry up, deliver everything that I had to deliver and call this guy every single day. And it would just ring and ring and ring. <laughs> and one day, and this is like after a few weeks. So that's when it's like, that's when I felt kind of stalkerish and kind of crazy. One day someone picked up and they were like, I'll transfer you back to him. It's like, oh, perfect. So I'm like, my heart's beating. I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about what I was going to say. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so he gets on the line. We start talking. And... End up just telling him everything. You know, I was like the only um, student in my program that was African-American. And if he had time at some point just to kind of talk. And he mentioned that he actually frequents uh, Philly. He, he visits often. And I was like, well, hey, um, next time you come, would it be possible if we met up? And he said, yeah, I'll give you, you know, gave me a cell phone number and everything. And he's like, you know, I'll be here in, you know, so many weeks. And we'll schedule it then. So I'm like, all right, cool. You know, so uh, finally that day comes. And I remember on the uh, the train ride over, uh, actually, I guess I can go back though too, for those who don't know who Noel Mayo is. But too, so he was the first African-American to um, get a degree in design from UArts, which I was originally a Philadelphia College of Arts. Uh, he was the first African-American chair of a design department. And he also started the first african-american design firm in the u.s and it happened to be in philly so that was like the thing to me where it was just like oh my gosh this is like storybook and i got in touch with this guy you know i remember on the train ride over being just extremely nervous you know and 
like one, just what I could research about him online and who he was and what he's done. And the whole time, like, you know, I kept telling myself, you know, I'd be, I'm happy if this guy just gives me 10 minutes. Like, I feel like it would just be therapeutic. You know, I'd be able to get through school, like whatever, you know, and we finally met and we talked for four hours <laughs> and it was like amazing for me. Cause it's like, I think the conversation stopped only because he had to go pick his wife up from the airport. But mm-hmm. I remember with that, I bought over, you know, a stack of sketches, uh, 3d prints and just uh, different projects and things I had done. And we talked about almost everything. And at one point he kind of asked me, I was like, well, how do you get work done? And I told him, you know, cause given my schedule and how I worked and he was saying how, you know, crazy it was and just that I had gotten as much done as I could. And at one point then he told me to, uh, or he asked me how much would it take, how much money would it take for me to quit my job and just concentrate on school? And he was like, you know, maybe I, you know, I can talk to some friends while we'll I'll throw in some money or, and you can quit your job, but you know, don't, don't hold me to it. You know, I'll, I'll be back in two weeks. We'll meet again and we'll kind of go from there. So, Two weeks goes by, and in the midst of that, he was like, you know, calculate all your monthly bills, whatever your expenses are. I mean, this is like everything down from, you know, me paying my loans, just all the expenses that I had, even up to, you know, calculating health care, because that was like a big thing, too. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, with UPS, it was like calculating that side. And, you know, we met in, uh, two weeks later, and um, after a conversation, and at the end of it, he was like, oh, by the way, you can quit your job. And I received a check from him every month, all the way up until I graduated. And that's how I really, if it wasn't for meeting him, that's the only way I think I would have really, one, just stayed in design, you know? And I think even with receiving that as a benefit, though, too, it's just, it was huge for me. And I remember in, in talking about, well, if this happens, you know, though, too, I mean, he told me, it's like, you know, if you accept this, part of it is, a complete chain turnaround. You know, if the teachers ask you for three things, do you are presenting ten? And the other part of that was, you know, depending on whenever the deadline was, I had to have all that stuff done and completed to send to him to review before I could even show it in class. So talk about like being on a grind. Like that's when you know I thought you know it was hard enough with you know working and going to school before meeting him, and on to some extent it like really prepared me for I think receiving that. Again, just, you know, as a blessing to continue and through to school. So I said there's going to be a special guest for this episode, which we'll, we'll get to them in a minute. First off, I wanted to read some comments that people had sent in uh, for the anniversary episode. Uh, the first comment here is from Sella Lewis, who you heard from earlier in the show. And she says, Revision Path reminds me that I'm not the only one in the design world. It's the only real platform for black graphic designers to be heard all year round. Paul Anthony Webb, who was on the show actually back in January, but is also like a Revision Path super fan. He's a patron. He's bought merch. He's great. I got to link up with Paul one day. But anyway, uh, Paul Anthony Webb says, I love that I can get advice and ideas from people of color. It's great. The design and web industry likes to pretend the future is pale, and we all know it's not. Paul is also super active in our Slack community, which if you haven't joined, we've got well over 300 members in there. Join, say hello, check out the channels. It's really dope. 
Richard Gary wrote and says, love your podcast. I just came across your site. I'm so happy to see so many brothers and sisters working in the design and advertising fields. Thanks a lot, Richard. I mean, I know we have designers. We've got some advertising people. We've also, you know, even had some developers, some software folks. I tried to keep it pretty varied as it relates to that, although now we're skewing a lot more towards design. But I like that people are seeing the variety that's here and not just, you know, one big monolith of folks. And this last comment here is from Michael Rain. He says, the value is huge. Over the past two to three years, I've made this transition from a communications person to a product manager and hope to soon be a designer. And I don't think I would have made that mental transition of seeing myself doing these things without Revision Path. That, that's really what it's all about, you know. It's about showing people that not only are we in this industry, but also existing as kind of a, a possibility model, which is, is what Laverne Cox calls it, but this possibility model to say, hey, I can do this because I see someone that looks like me, you know, forming that visual psychological bond like that is super important. So thanks to everybody that sent in comments. I really do appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and go into this interview with our special guest. And you've heard me actually mention this person probably for the past 100 or so episodes, maybe more. Um, I'm talking with my audio engineer, RJ Basilio. RJ is actually located in the Philippines, so he is 13 hours away. Never met the guy. We talk mostly through email or through Slack. So this is actually my first time getting a chance to talk to him about what he does. So you'll hopefully learn some more about him. Uh, here we go. Here's the interview. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Well, I'm RJ Basilio from the Philippines, and I'm an online freelancer from Upwork.com. And my job is I edit podcasts just like this one. And so very short, I'm your podcast editor. That's what I do. How did we first start working together? I can't remember the exact date, but I think we started working together in 2015. So it's really a very long time now, and still I'm working in Revision Path. Yeah, very long time. What has it been like working on the show all these years? Wow. All I can say is I'm so glad that we knew each other. And I'm so thankful that you are my long-term client. Oris is an all-around good guy and a very nice client to work with. So if you are interested to work with Maurice, you know, you are one lucky person. So go ahead and check out our job vacancies in our website. So as our audio engineer, you've listened to a lot of episodes of the show. So I'm curious to know, what have you learned from Revision Path? Hmm. Well, we are on our 188th episode now. So I'd say being a web designer is a very fun job. And honestly, I really wanted to be one when I was still studying. And I was like making websites using front page way back. <laughs> and also your guests give me the motivation to do what I love. So I'm really thankful. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? In the next five years, I hope that I'm still working with you and uh, will continue to learn more new things from your guests. Quite frankly, I couldn't ask for more. Great career, good health, and supportive family. Maybe the only thing for me to do is to get married soon. <laughs> and I hope to meet you one day when I get a chance to go to the States because it's really my dream. Do you have anything you want to say to our audience? 
for the audience i would like to thank you all for supporting revision path for the past four years we really appreciate it in behalf of maurice and i hope you will continue to support us and also i want to give my shout outs to my friends who are listening right now and also to bell all right well rj where can our audience find out more about you and your work online you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is rjbasilio underscore. So that's rjbasilio underscore. And also, if you need help for a podcast, anything, I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Brixology. That's B-R-I-X-X-O-L-O-G-Y. RJ Basilio, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, you've been such an integral part of this show's success for so long. I really can't imagine having gotten here without you. It's good to hear from you. It's good to talk to you. And yeah, I definitely hope we'll be working together more in the future. You are welcome, Maurice. Again, happy anniversary and congratulations. You take care always, man. And, you know, stay cool. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Thanks so much to all the guests that we've had on the show. I mean, you all are so amazing at what you do. And I'm really just thankful and blessed to be able to share your work and what you do with the world. Uh, Thanks to RJ for doing that interview with me. It was really good to talk to him and kind of get some more insight behind who he is and what he does to help make our show sound great. Uh, Just thanks to everybody all around. It's, It's the anniversary. I'm just in a thankful mood. So, of course, I also want to thank our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as showing how internal design critiques work, sharing resources about VR and other cutting-edge tech, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates for Photoshop and Sketch, and even diverse hands for mockups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow their business, recapture sales, and make money in their sleep. Did you know that you can now make Facebook ads inside of MailChimp and connect them to your MailChimp list? It's a real game changer. I highly recommend it. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. With free private domain registration and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. 60% y'all. I cannot stress that enough. 60% off. SiteGround. Web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Selected music that's used throughout this episode is courtesy of Chill Hop. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps bump the show up in the rankings for design podcast. And I'll read your review right here on the show. Push
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge. Pledge level started just $1 a month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.